Hello and welcome to Happy Place. I'm Fern Cotton and right now it's actually six in the morning and I am in a Radio 2 studio and it's still dark outside. This week I'm covering for Chris Evans on The Breakfast Show, having a lot of fun. So I thought I'd quickly record this whilst I'm at it. Now, so far in this series, we've spoken to people who are trying to better themselves one day at a time, much like myself. But today, we're going to hear from someone who meets exceptional people every day. That's right, it's the presenter of Desert Island Discs, the magnificent Kirsty Young. When a friend, a good, true friend, who knows you, who you trust, tells you something, really take time to listen to it, because the chances are it will be incredibly good advice. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And now, here's the show. I find myself today in another very nice hotel to meet someone. And I want to talk today about something I personally question quite a lot. I think this is the floor. Let's get out. I think a lot about conversation and communication because if you hadn't guessed, I like to have a chat. And I do worry and wonder if all of us are slightly losing the skill and the nerve to have a proper conversation, like a proper face-to-face conversation because we all communicate so much digitally and i do this myself personally I think we're somewhat diluting the need to actually sit and talk to someone face to face and what that means and what we get from that and I'm personally scared for myself and also the younger generation as to what that means so how do we backpedal and how do we get back to that glorious simplicity I thought today it'd be really nice to chat with someone who is a broadcasting legend who interviews people face to face for their job and her gorgeous Scottish dulcet tones make me feel instantly calm every Sunday on Desert Island Discs I'm going to go and meet up with the wonderful Kirsty Young Kirsty, thank you so much for pleasure for hanging out today. I'm not. I don't find it that comfortable to be the one who's about to be asked things. I have I to bet. tell you, it's really nerve wracking for me. Isn't Think it? about me oh. in this situation, Kirsty. Oh. You do this impeccably all the time. <laughs> well, that's a good edit for you. When you were growing up, did you? sort of recognised that you loved chatting or were you quite shy when you were growing up? Well, I was a child of the 70s. I was born in 1968 and so as a child of the 70s, you you sort of did what you were told, didn't you? You Mm. sat and listened and then you occasionally contributed. But I I think probably, which was, I mean, I'm very, very nice parents and I like my parents and I still speak to them, but you weren't constantly asked, you know, for example, what do you want for breakfast or what do you think of that or where would you like to go on holiday or are you fine? Mm. All the things I find myself asking my kids. Mm. Nobody asked you that in the 70s. You were just there 
and you fell in and you got on with it. And I, I think Glaswegians anyway are quite an opinionated, voluble bunch. So I think there was always a lot of chat around the house and we made each other laugh. I wrote for the school newspaper, I was, and this makes me cringe, I was in the debating society, which slightly makes the bile rise that. in my throat. But So I think I had that natural propensity to be quite gobby quite early. Mm. And as my husband will say to me, well, we all know you've got an opinion. So, you know, I think I'm sort of, that's just part of sort of who I am. But I think probably that comes from the culture of Glasgow, where people just chat. You know, if, whenever I go back to Glasgow, which I'm afraid I don't do enough, I mean, you, could, you walk past a bus stop and somebody will say something. It's a bit like New York in that way. Or if you're sitting in a rest, I know. And people don't do that in the South, really. People are very self-contained and respectful of each other's space. In Glasgow, are you all right, Don? Love the boots. How are you doing? Great hair, Kirsty. You know, you get all of that just stepping out the door. But isn't that also because most people, when you walk out, you know, we're in a very busy part of London, you walk out and you a sea of people with their necks craning down, thumbs agilely moving around their phone. (laughs) People are just on their phones and so you don't even notice people, let alone have the opportunity to sort of go, oh, to a stranger, hello. And that's sort of a shame that it's changed like that. I've started walking more because I figure that when I'm on transport, I look at my phone and I think when I'm walking, I I try not to do that. I try to be in the world. Mm. Have my phone in my bag or my pocket. If it rings... Oh, Hi there, this is a cup of tea. I this is a, a wonderful cup of tea. Cup of tea. Well, yes, that. well, I hope so. Um, it's interesting talking about, you know, for instance, how your parents were and how that generation were with yes. communication. There yes. was a lack of being able to feel comfortable around sort of asking people how they felt or saying, I love you. I know my parents have always found that slightly strange. Yes. And then we've become perhaps slightly more willing to do so. And well, we're very touchy-feely, aren't we? Yeah, I we don't are. know. It feels like a good thing. I mean, I always knew my parents loved me. My mum was very huggy, very tactile. I don't think she was always... She tells me more now probably how much she loves me. But And I think my dad, you know, was very taciturn and very Glaswegian and Scottish in that way that, you know, you, you can't possibly talk about emotions. I think it's probably good... I don't know. It's mm. a it's a new it's an experiment, isn't it? Mm. I don't know. And it's strange because although we are probably slightly more prolific in you know saying things like that, or or even just sort of um, having an opinion or asking someone for theirs, we are becoming slightly more disconnected in lots of ways because of yes, the digital it's a, age. It's a paradox, isn't it? And I think yeah. also, especially in families, and I guess you can extrapolate that because we're all in families somehow, is this idea that it, we run our families now as democracies. Mm. I think that is a really, really good thing, but I think it's really hard work. It is. And I think in the same way that we all seek now to try not to offend people socially, mm. It's a really good thing, but it's quite hard work. It's easier to be lazy and selfish, but I think yeah. the, I think the investment we put in is probably is probably going to be rewarding. I like to be optimistic yeah. about that. But yeah, and I think people crave connection more because we seem to live a lot of our lives digitally. Mm, and maybe we are sort of bucking that trend somewhat because we know subconsciously that we aren't communicating always on a genuine level because it is through a screen rather than face to face. You know, obviously there is such a huge change with how we're communicating digitally. Yeah. How does that make you feel? Well, I I don't... I steer clear of a lot of it um, mm. because I would rather be talking. Mm. There is nothing I like more than a small group of people or a one-to-one talking to somebody. I'm deliberately... I'm not on social media and I don't follow... When I do programmes, I don't particularly follow how people respond to them on social media because I think that instant firing something off, it has its place and I completely accept... It is a way of communicating, and I know I'm probably missing out on all of that. 
but I think it can have a downside and I think mm. we, we can immediately take injury think, oh, they don't like it or nobody liked me or somebody said well you know that's kind of life it's mm. sort of just a, it's like a great big AC Grayling once said the brilliant philosopher who I interviewed once said you know the, the internet is just like a great big toilet wall and people are scrawling on it all the time mm. and what you have to do is to try to take it at that value say somebody wrote something on the toilet wall but it seems so massive that I think all of us are placing more importance on it yeah. than well, we it's should a choice. do. It we, need, we need to, you know, we make a choice about whatever, what we eat, whether we take exercise, who we, you know, who we go out with. Whatever. I think engaging in social media it absolutely has a place, and I'm not being a luddite about it. But I think you don't have to do it. It's, a, it's another thing that you have to do. You know, two billion people are on Facebook. I'm not one of them. Mm. I feel fine about that. Yeah, I feel fine about that. So when you are sat face to face with people that you love or people that you don't know what is that special magic that you get from having that face-to-face conversation with someone well it's very different of course if you're interviewing somebody professionally it's very different from sitting down next to somebody at supper or getting introduced to somebody over a drink who you don't know I mean if I you know when I'm working and I'm I'm doing interviews for Desert Island Discs I've done a lot of prep I sort of sit a mini exam in somebody before I go to meet them because I've got to you've got 45 minutes on air to try to conjure a sort of intimacy and that of course is a fallacy because okay I know some of the people I interview but most of them I don't so you've got to quickly get to a place where I try not to have received opinions about them but I try to understand how they got to where they got to so if I'm you know when I'm reading all the background stuff on them I look for, people don't, we don't, I think, look for patterns in our own life. But what I'm looking for when I'm doing the research is little resurgent patterns. Of, oh, and then that, and then, and there's that rhythm again. Or, so there's mum left and he was seven, he hasn't spoken to her for 18 years. Or, that's his third marriage. Or, God, she had a kidney transplant when she was 12. You know, little things that sort of help to, because we do repeat ourselves. Our patterns in life and the patterns of our parents do repeat. So I look for those patterns. You, I mean, always I am interviewing people who have done are very successful and you know success comes out of complexity is my sort of ad hoc theory I don't think success comes out of nothing I mean it's not it's not any great pearl of wisdom from me really but I think that there is always complexity and grit in a situation and out of that comes the pearl you know I think that that, that people are those things that are formed early you know I interviewed this incredible super brainy economist uh Shafiq this week um Brilliant woman. Well, you know, she's an economist, so that's difficult. It's difficult to, to, to grapple with that. It's a, it's a dry and difficult subject. Well, you know what? It came out of the fact that her parents, they came from a really well-to-do family uh, in Egypt. And during President Nasser's uh, nationalisation programme, her family went from incredibly well off to having literally nothing. And so she saw at a really young age how economic policy you know and I said to her dare I draw an exact line and she said you dare because obviously that was a massively so out of that complexity from this you think well you know what makes somebody into economist well they're good with figures and she's really brainy and she's got a PhD and she was deputy governor of the Bank of England and I think I sort of well no it came out of a, a really sort of textural granular experience where her father you know they ended up living in South Carolina and her father was in polyester suits and they were scraping money together to, to you know to pay the food bills and she's in a con you know, it came out in very unlikely in in what was, you know, potentially a very sort of dry interview. Well, no, it came out of that complexity. Or, you know, I was talking about Tom Hanks, you know, his father was married many, many times. He'd loads of step siblings. He had you know, there was nowhere really necessarily and he was he was very, very kind about his father, but I think he'd had a, a hell of an upbringing really. 
And it was finding the things that he couldn't say in private because he couldn't rock the boat because it was so full of marriages and divorces and half-siblings and, and difficulty and strife. But he could start to express himself through other people's words. You know, that was when he first felt that he could really say things, was when somebody was putting words in his mouth and he could talk about the emotional landscape by being on stage because he couldn't talk about it at home. So, you know, those are just, I'm p- pulling those two out of the air because they occur to me, but I just can think of so, and, and also this, you know, the need to succeed. Usually, I mean, I can't think of an example where that's not true. You know, Bradley Wiggins is another one. You know, his, his father was, you know, essentially sort of peddling barbiturates. He was a cyclist, competitive cyclist to other cyclists on the route in Europe. He came and he went and, you know, Bradley really had no relationship with him at all guess what happened? The guy goes and wins the Tour de France. You know, who's he? he's waving a huge flag and saying, I can do it without the stuff you are doing. I, I'm, I'm doing it for my mother. I'm doing, you know, I, I, I can't think of a set of circumstances where that is mm. not the case where somebody said, you know, I just kind of kicked back and then I won the Nobel Prize. And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't happen that way. It doesn't, it's never, not, certainly not the people I've ever spoken to. When you're in that situation and someone is telling you their story, even if they aren't being massively elaborate, but they're saying something that you know is very meaningful to them and you know that it's going to resonate with the listeners. What is that teaching you about yourself? Do you ever walk away thinking, that's actually been a bit of a game-changing moment for me there or that's made me reflect on my own life? Do you feel that oh, often? I've had loads of Have those. you? Yeah. All the time. Mm. I would say on an almost, well, maybe not a weekly basis, but all the time. I think being exposed to other people's experiences, first of all, it opens your mind and that's a good thing. I tended to be a very black and white person. I would say I, I had a tendency towards being very judgmental. I think probably that was why for years I ended up working in news and current affairs because it suit, that suits you. Mm. That's right, this is wrong, he's this, she's that. And actually, of course, the world has... And this also is partly getting older and it's partly being a mother and all that sort of stuff. You know, the world is full of great swathes of grey areas. So it teaches you that. And also it teaches you that things that you think have just have glanced off you probably made more of an impact than you think. You know, that things in your childhood and you know I, I I had a brilliant childhood and continue to have a happy and good life but you understand that actually it makes us who we are you know because I've traced those patterns through other people's lives and so I think I've become a lot more cognizant of the fact that my early life says a lot more about the life I have now. I interviewed um, a Nobel Prize winning scientist as you do a guy called uh, Daniel Kahneman, Danny Kahneman who won the Nobel Prize. He really knows a thing or two about stuff. And he he is the inventor of this thing called nudge theory. They now have the nudge unit in, in Downing Street, which is a way of trying to direct people's behaviour towards a set. Rather than telling them, you say, well, you know, most people pay their taxes on time or most people put their recycling out. So you nudge people towards good behaviour. So he's the guy that thought of that. He's really super brainy. And when I interviewed him about five or six years ago, by then he was 83, I think, anyway. So he was elderly. And I said to him, you know, it must be very... <laughs> wearing to be you where you go everywhere and people are like give us give us your wisdom Danny you know you won a Nobel Prize but he really is a very very wise man and he's uh, and the social science experiments that he has done absolutely pioneering about the inbuilt prejudices we have the things we think we're making decisions about but in fact we're just using our gut all this fascinating stuff and I said to him you know what is the piece of advice that you would give people, if you could give people a single bit of advice, knowing all you know through empirical science about human nature and the way we act and react. And it was it was such a simple three words, but then, and I'll give you the three words, and then 
he explained afterwards, um, in fact, is it four words? You can tell I'm not a Nobel Prize winning <laughs> scientist. I think it's four words. Listen to your friends. And I looked and I said, right. He said, well, here's the reason you should listen to your friends, is that they, your real friends, your close, close friends, are totally engaged in your life. They're completely invested in what is best for you. But unlike probably members of your family, and certainly unlike you, they have the advantage of distance. And so they can see before you might ever see it, and certainly in ways where our complex familial relationships can sometimes really cloud judgment of, of people that we are close to, whether they're husbands or wives or parents or children. They have the, the dispassion of a little bit of distance that gives them so much more clarity. So when a friend, a good, true friend who knows you, who you trust, tells you something, really take time to listen to it because the chances are it will be incredibly good advice. And I thought that was, it was sort of stunning in its simplicity and especially coming from such a big-brained guy who's, you know, been in sin and done everything that he has as a Nobel scientist. I thought that is really incredibly interesting. And so I've tried to do more of that, I do, of saying as, you know, to my best friends, well, what do you think about that? Because I think it's that bit of distance is, you know, uh, simple but not easy. I think a simple piece of advice but not an easy piece of advice yeah because I love that um and I do that a lot I've got friends I know that if I ask them for advice or I tell them a story that I need help with I know there are some friends and they're all dear friends but I know that some will absolutely give me what I need to hear yes. not what I want yes. but like definitely what I need to hear but there are some friends slash acquaintances who I know might fire me up a little bit more in the wrong direction yes. because they equally share a distaste or passion for something that's not yeah. great yeah. but I know the ones I can go to who are, you know like he said I should be listening to and really take heed of their advice and and that can be so game-changing I've had m- mates say things to me and it has been absolutely game changing and and been like you say that that sort of stunning simplicity of yes. oh yeah I'll do that then great because yes. you can see it and I can't because I'm absolutely yes I buggered think, can't I, see I think also trusting your gut instinct as well I read mm. a lot of what of Malcolm Gladwell had written about that and I interviewed him you know this idea you know we all like to think that that all of the time we're aggregating our knowledge and making reasoned decisions and actually our capability to trust our gut instinct if if you really tune into it is very very good as well so i think that's probably quite a big thing that i've i've come to i was exposed to and i i probably really take a lot more seriously than i ever would hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't do much social media and you like meeting up with people and being face-to-face yeah. and, and having that connection. How important is the other side of that, being alone and having no conversation? Well, I'm doing a lot more of that now, but I guess that's... I'm about to be... I'm celebrating my... I don't know if I'll celebrate it. Yeah, I think I will. My 50th at the end of this year. I think probably a lot of that comes from just being the age that I am. I'm doing. I'm finding myself doing a lot of those things that 50-year-old women do, <laughs> 
which is talking to my chickens, taking up oh, yoga and fabulous. building a greenhouse. But is there we go. Is it worrying that I do that at 36? I though? don't think it's worrying at all. And I think you're smart to get to it early. <laughs> uh, no, I yeah. So a tight space. I'm creating space. Space is really important. My mum used to call it, she used to say, Christy, where's your dribbling, looking at the wall and dribbling time? Mm. You know, that idea is just kind of, mm. and I didn't More really have any. I, d- I, was, I was quite a driven person. Not so you so, think not we're, so all, much. we're all sort of scared of doing that a bit. I think yeah. everyone is, and probably because of the, of the digital age, there's so much information fed to us yes. constantly, and it's accessible at any point we want it. I also think that we set ourselves up for this sort of hyper-engagement with everybody. I was talking to, to my husband actually the other day about the, the, the use of the word passion. I think that, you know, we used to have the word luxury. We used to call things like, and people stay away from that now because it's such a spent word. Everything's mm. luxury now. Mm. It's a luxury mini break or a luxury mm. cashmere jumper. <laughs> you know, you don't hear people say it anymore. And I think passion is going to be the new luxury mm. because I think it's fine to not be passionate about everything. You don't have to be, you know, it's fine just to be, just think, quite enjoyed that. Mm. Not sure what I thought about it. This idea that oh, choose your career through your passion. It's a very high expectation. Mm, you know, is. this idea that we've that we've all got to be functioning at the maximum capacity. Mm. I don't think necessarily, I think it's great if you have passions for things and I think you could, passions can come and go. And, but I think we need to cut ourselves from slack and mm. be a bit gentler with ourselves. You know, that idea that Everything is, you know, your eyebrows have to be perfect and your relationship has to be perfect. And you have to be passionate. It's not realistic. And I think it, it can mm. set people up for a terrible fall in a sense in which, you know, somehow they're not meeting some mark of expectation. I think that's a that's a very corrosive thing. It's relentless, isn't it? That's what it, it is. is. It's completely it is. draining and yeah. relentless. And yeah. I guess if you are just to, to be and to be content in that without having to be enthusiastic, passionate, yes. attached to something else, actually sitting and having a conversation with people, strangers, loved ones, is actually quite a good way of doing that. And just sort of discussing whatever and there not being an agenda the whole time. I yes. think we're all very agenda-led yeah, in this I think day and so. age. I think so. And that might again be very digitally driven that there must be an aim and a goal and a like and a number attached and you know, to everything. And also the syndrome, we've all seen it, you know, of, of to have done it, not to be doing it. So to take a photograph of your lunch, not so as you eat it, mm. so as you can show mm. people what you, you know, that, that whole, or you could extrapolate that endlessly, mm. you know, be, be climbing the Andes so as you can take the photograph mm. or, you know, have a child. Mm, <laughs> so you, yeah. I mean, you could take it to ridiculous extremes, yeah. but this idea that somehow we're, we're, f- we're fulfilling our digital footprint by doing things rather than actually being there and doing it. You know, I think that we have to, we have to be just careful of that almost the word sharing has changed because sharing yeah. to me still very much means I'm going to tell you some stuff and feel free to tell me some home truths back or your own story but I, I have to get this out whereas I think sharing now people just assume it's flinging things out information yes. whatever and they don't care what comes back or if it's anything valuable it's just I must let people see everything and and hear everything that I'm doing you know I talk to our kids about that and I say you know there's a really old-fashioned word for that it's called boasting <laughs> and I have a really really Scottish yeah. sensibility about that is don't be boasting. Mm. Don't be boasting about your holidays. <laughs> Don't be boasting. Keep you it know, private. Just do it. Enjoy it. And it happened. Mm. You know, but this idea, I think it, I think it's, uh, maybe that's, I'm not religious and neither are my parents, but my Presbyterian way back roots, you know, maybe a slightly kind of finger waggy about that. But I think if we be careful, you know, be careful mm. about that. Because it's not, not everybody's living these, most people, in fact, are not living great 
big juicy flashy lives mm. most people are just kind of getting through their day and lots of people that are posting pictures of their juicy fashionable lives actually aren't living them of anyway of course they're not it's of course they're not they've taken shit. yeah I know <laughs> I, I saw we were on holiday recently and I saw I'm sure she was a perfectly nice woman came out with her kids and I'm like they're like somebody styled them for mm. a photo shoot they were having drinks it was in this lovely hotel in Morocco she and her husband were having a drink and then she started doing the selfie thing and she was doing a lot of the selfies. She looked incredible, incidentally. Her daughter, who was three, had a matching handbag. So wow. she was taking all these pictures. And then she put her phone down after about 25 minutes. And none of them spoke to each other. And oh. I thought, that woman has probably spent two hours getting ready. She's certainly changed her kid at least three times if she's anything like my kids when they were three-year-olds. And nobody had anything to say to each other. And I thought, you know, that will be posted. People will think, oh, my God, look at her. But actually, they looked like they were having a miserable time. Yeah, of course, of course. It's so, it's not even a little bit of the picture. It's kind of nothing related to the picture of what's really happening. And that's the huge disconnect. And also the lack of perspective that we've all got. We kind of, you know... I liken it sometimes to, I'll go to the cinema and I'll watch a film and I'll go, that was a lovely story. I might quite fancy him, but I'll walk away and forget about it. Yeah. Whereas on social media you go, oh, but why don't I look like yes, that? And why exactly. don't I? Ha-? And, it, and it becomes a reality rather than a fantasy, which it is. Which and is also so it's changing. When I speak to very brainy people about this, they tell me that it's changing the way our brains process memory mm. because our, our memories are very precious to us in that they jettison the bad stuff. They, they protect us mm. and they protect, we curate, our brain is curating the most sort of nurturing version of our past for us. That's mm. why people, you know, have memories that they have to access, terrible memories mm. that they've packed away because that's what our brain does. It protects us. And if we have this immense digital footprint where every single part of our life is documented, we don't have the capacity as individuals to junk the stuff we don't need or not to go back and see the bad bit. You know, if you look at yourself in, <laughs> at a party and you think, I thought I looked great. Oh, mm. shit, I look like that. <laughs> in there. Kind of ruins the party, mm. doesn't it? Mm. Whereas if you never see a photograph, you think, that party that I looked great at and great. had a great I time I felt at. great. Yeah, exactly. And actually, that's the only thing yeah, that matters. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's weird because I was watching a Are we sounding like two old women now? No, talking I'm liking about it. Them. I'm enjoying it. I like being like an old woman. <laughs> I watched a really interesting TED talk the other day that was talking about that. And... Again, how our brain's changing. And previously, we would have a feeling of, well, this is a nice cup of tea. And then we might ring up someone to say, oh, I've just had a really nice cup of tea. Yes. Whereas now, we might feel void of anything and then reach to our phones to get the feeling. So before we would ah. feel and share, and now we're going to the thing to find information or to yes. share to try and get a feeling. How interesting. Yeah, weird. And also I had never very, thought of that. Yeah, and very empty, I'm guessing. Very it's not, empty, because yeah. it's not a real anything. It's just kind of a strange digital something that you've grabbed hold of because you're feeling, I guess, going back to that, we should be staring at the wall a bit more and have yeah. downtime of nothingness. Yeah. We're, we're frightened of that. Yes. And equally, I think we are frightened of putting ourselves in a real life conversation because, of course, with that comes a slight vulnerability. Yes, like you have it can be to very uncomfortable. Quite vulnerable. And it could be even talking to someone that you know and love, or it could be like in your job, and sometimes mine, talking to people we don't know very well. You are vulnerable because you don't know where the hell it's going to go. Yeah. And there's no contr- there's no delete button, or oh, I could be funnier in this sentence, yes. or you're just going for it. And perhaps we're quite scared of that. But, you know, the reward of that is so much greater, isn't it? Because if you have it's a brilliant. real exchange, then... Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's not. I'm, I'm not down on technology. I think there are loads of incredible, rich, rewarding things about technology. Of course, no doubt about of course, that. But yeah. I do think there's no 
well, I would say this, wouldn't I? But I think there's no substitute for mm. sitting, looking somebody in the eye and having, you know, having an exchange. An I agree. Exchange. Yeah. I wonder what it is that, and I put myself in this category because I, I love chatting, but sometimes I think oh, it would be easier to send an email than, than call them or meet yeah. up. So I will. Yes. And what is that fear that surrounds most of us? You know, is it rejection, alienation, feeling like a fool? I don't know. There's, I guess it's all of those things. You know, yeah. my husband who who's is a real face-to-face person partially because he he only really started using he can use an ipad and he does text now but he's really very dyslexic and so for years he was very slow to the party on that and he is a great believer in you see people face to face or you pick up the phone and talk to them you don't especially if you've got something important to say and very rarely sends emails and he does send texts now but you know i i think it makes an enormous difference because there is a quality in the exchange and also there's there's very little opportunity for misunderstanding because people can yes. hear your tone of voice and all of that. I think it is, it's it's vital, actually. It goes back to what we're saying about when you're interviewing people and you've got to read them and, and that yeah. is impossible on email. You could take one email and of, give of it five different stories of, of how it would come out and yeah. again, you're missing that magic of, of what it felt like to be with that yeah. person. And tone of voice and is hugely important. tone of voice, yeah, yeah. huge. Yeah. Going back into the studio, um, what interviews have you done specifically during Desert Island Discs that have been the most surprising where you thought that person's not going to say a thing I know it's going to be a perhaps spiky or difficult and they've been just wonderfully loquacious oh my gosh that has happened so often actually you know I mentioned Bill Gates and, and that was one because I know mm. you know Bill is a little bit spectrumy. Mm. I think he would say that himself you know he, he didn't get where he is today uh, without being you know big on detail Mm-mm. and yet he was so so he was extremely tender about his wife Melinda he told a really beautiful story about I'm trying to remember now he was a very very big American star that he had it was the night before his wedding up married in Hawaii and I, I hopefully I will remember it gosh I've listened to this I, I should also have big, a memory big of it American somewhere. singer star and he said to his wife the night before let's go for just a walk along the beach and spend a little bit of time together oh, I, I remember it was I so he was walking along the beach and there was this guy coming towards them and he, he had a guitar and he was it was Willie Nelson and he oh. choppered in Willie Nelson to come and serenade as him and do. his wife. And I thought, what kind of beauty. And as he told mm. it, he was sort of in the moment of telling it and then we played the lovely Willie Nelson track. So that, you know, you wouldn't expect that of somebody like him. You would mm. expect him to talk about, I mean, he did talk about the Gates Foundation, he did talk about technology, he talked about the beginning of Microsoft, but, you know, it was a little tender door. I mean, Tom Hanks was the same. Oh, he I was loved very. Dustin Hoffman was very surprising, very, very vulnerable in his way. I, I, you know, I've come to realise actually with, with particularly big actors is that they are able to access their emotions very quickly, I think, which is one of the things that makes them so good at what they do. They have a very acute ability to access their emotions and therefore when you talk to them specifically with music that means a lot to them, you know, their, their emotions are quite, quite close to the surface. I remember David Williams saying, it was quite a few years ago that I interviewed him and it was before he had... Uh, gone on to marry and have a child so he, he didn't have children but he was talking ab- about unraveling on his own and it was very you know he he, he did he talked about that mm. that darker more difficult side of him very 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 open about that and that was kind of surprising to me and very very interesting so you know it happens all the time mm. I hear people say things and I think my god you know really but I think that's like less to do with luck and the fact that you are just a brilliant broadcaster and you do ha- yeah, it's a, a skill to have, but it's a real skill to have a great conversation with someone and to yeah. keep something flowing and 
And I'm sure you've had to interview people or talk to people through journalistic work where they have been monosyllabic, they have been reticent oh to my tell God, their story. Yeah, yeah. How on earth do you navigate a conversation well, that starts really like that? Difficult, isn't yeah. it? I mean, I think of Michael Parkinson when he was doing the classic Meg Ryan mm. one and he said to her, Well, what would you do? And she went, Wrap it up. Mm. You know, you can't, I mean, what can you do? Oh, God almighty. Oh, I know. Absolutely <laughs> horrendous. I mean, he, I thought he did really, yeah. I thought he handled it manfully, womanfully. Should there be an equivalent word? Yes, I think there we should. should be. I, yeah, I think we should invent that. <laughs> what do you do? Well, do you know what I do? I just get the cards on the table and I say to them, You don't really seem like you want to talk to me, or you seem really uncomfortable with that, or I don't know if I'm saying something that's upsetting you, but you don't seem to want to talk to me. I do. If somebody's being really uncooperative, I think that I probably wouldn't have had the confidence to do that when I started out. But now I kind of do because I think, well, is yeah. that through practice time? What is it? Yeah, it's just time. And it's and also if you you know, I know that I, <laughs> I need to deliver an interview because that's my job. Yeah. So then you have to turn the disadvantage to your advantage mm. and you have to say you seem you seem very uncomfortable or. Am I annoying you? Or And then that can turn, because I like hearing stuff like that. So oh, I, yeah. I am, yeah, quite good. Isn't that a little bit of grit in the oyster? Mm. So I think you have to kind of then, um, you know, you just have to kind of sort of come clean. And also I always think of when I'm interviewing somebody as it being a kind of triangulated conversation where the person who's listening, okay, they're, they're a mute participant, but they're there. And it's those. It's as though I'm kind of raising my eyebrow to them, like get them. You know, yeah. What's wrong with them? You know, yeah. it's a kind of. It's inclusive to the listener, instead of trying because things aren't perfect, and actually that is as interesting as anything. Oh yeah. To realise that somebody's kind of really like hunkered down. What about outside of the studio? How do you deal with difficult conversations, confrontation with within real life? I don't think I'm. Uh, I don't think I'm great at confrontation because mm. my mouth runs away with me. I've got a smart mouth mm. and I don't think that's a nice thing to have. I don't think that's a good thing to have. I don't think it's productive. Mm. I'm trying to uh, curb my smart mouth. But it's really hard, isn't it? <laughs> it's I, really hard. I but it's not, a, it's not a good thing to have. It can shut people down. And I used mm. to sort of slightly pride myself in my smart mouth and now I, can't, I find it pretty distasteful. I'm mm. working on my smart mouth. Mm. But actually to get most things pass... Mm. Most things pass and the feeling passes. And I think it's that thing of not being a hostage to your feelings, which yeah. I'm learning more. And I'm I'm a very calm, collected person professionally. I can really, really deal with as extreme as it would get in my job professionally. And I've mm. done lots of news things where you deal with unpredictable things and difficult things. And I do not fluster. But I think in the, you know, in my, in my life away from the studio... I, I did have a tendency to shoot my mouth off and be a bit of a smart mm. arse. And I, I don't think it's useful. And I think often things that would annoy me now, if I just take the time to let them pass, you know what? They kind of pass. Yeah. And they don't really seem in that kind of heat, that kind of absolute florid heat that you can get when something's really pissing you off. Mm. If you just give it time and go out and mm. don't say anything, it's better. And usually it passes. So do you think your professional life and... And how you communicate at work has actually helped you in your real life with communicating. I don't know if it has. I think it's maybe just growing up a bit. Mm. I don't know. I, I, it's impossible for me to say because yeah. I don't know how it would have been without it. But mm. I certainly think my professional life has made me much better at seeing the other person's point of view. Mm. You know, I was a real my way or the highway merchant, which mm. is cobblers, obviously. So I think that's helped me with that. I've seen, well, that, OK, just because it's my, my feelings, it's, it's got... It's got no extra weight because it's my feeling. Hmm. I think my professional life has taught me that. Do you think there's 
still a big confusion culturally with what conversation means versus what communication means. Oh, gosh. Well, that's a PhD, isn't it? Well, I think good good conversation is, by its very nature, good communication. I don't. I think they occupy the same sort of arena. I think I think communicate. Or, you know, I find certainly in, in my professional life, the, the best interviews are the ones where I have listened to somebody's answer and picked up on it. And I think you can absolutely. You know, you need to. I know it's. I've never done any of these courses, but I know in, in the sort of uh, counselling courses they do that well. I hear that you're hurt, which is just to say to somebody, you acknowledge mm. their point of view. You don't talk over the end of them. You leave them enough space and you let them know that you heard them. So I think you can take that out of the interview arena and probably put it in, you know, put it in, into real life. I think that that is, that is, you know, good communication at its heart is a good conversation where you actually really listen to what the person said. Yeah. And that's, I guess, also like the difference between just hearing something, but like really listening, yeah, and, really listening. and engaging and yeah. having that, that was the connectivity. Best, that was the best piece of single advice I was ever given professionally. And it was when I stood in for somebody on a, on a, on a phone-in show and I was tiny titch he shouldn't really have been given the job it's at Radio Scotland I'm guessing nobody else was there to do it or certainly couldn't do it cheaply enough so I got to do it and this very good um, phone in host was away on holiday Leslie Riddich and she I was standing in for her totally unqualified for the job and I was sort of like she obviously could see me like Bambi in the headlights absolutely <laughs> myself but what, and, and I asked her for advice and she said just listen listen to what the callers say mm. really good piece really I mean so it sounds sort of so simplistic but it's absolutely true and it's amazing during interviews how often people don't do that because they've got their list of questions they're getting to the bit they're getting to and then they're leaving and actually that's where you miss the pearls Mm. if you don't and also the language people use you know people might use a word instead of saying they felt scared they might say I felt sad and in an unexpected so you think oh sad I wouldn't have expected you to feel sad so really tuning in to the language that people use is a is a is a is a massively important part I think of a good conversation Mm, I do I mean outside of what you do and I do professionally I think to have the patience and the skill and the empathy to really listen to someone it is something that we all somewhat miss out on and because we're too keen to share or offload I certainly am but I have learned over the years <laughs> that you? yeah I love getting things out it feels like it needs to be released and oh I feel like a weight physically lifts when I say things that feel I feel ashamed about or nervous about or whatever embarrassed about but I have learned certainly over the years that listening is actually the remedy to all of it whether that be because I'm gaining some information or just to hear like properly listen to someone else's perspective. Yes. I think that's like the most game-changing thing. Well, that's a fine line. Because I was about to say something there and I thought, no, I don't, really, I don't really think that, which is actually we should talk less and listen more. I don't think, I think if, we need, if you have a physical sensation that you need to get something out, mm. then that is yourself telling you you need to get it out. Yeah. But I do think listening is, is under, probably underrated. Mm. You know, especially now probably we're all so busy telling everybody yeah. everything about how we feel about them They're actually just listening you know that's yeah. it's good it's good to, it's very so more uh, useful. listening and more staring at the wall there are goals staring for at the, the wall year, and dribbling they? as my mother dribbling. says yeah. that's what we need to be doing we do. yeah. um Kirsty, I can't thank you enough for your time. It's It's so lovely. It was just a joy chatting to you. I feel like we should have like the crashing waves and the desert island discs. I haven't chosen any music yet. What are we doing? What kind of show is this? I felt like that was too cliche (laughs) of a question to ask you. My list is always changing anyway. Thank you, Kirsty. Great pleasure. Oh, that voice. That woman, I love her. What a fabulous human being. Thanks again to Kirsty Young. 
And if you've never heard it before, I would heartily recommend Desert Island Discs. Wherever you've been, go listen. Every single episode from the past 50 years is available as a podcast from the BBC. Now, we've only been going two months, but all of our episodes are also available as a podcast. So get subscribing to hear more as soon as they've been released. And if you like what you hear, then give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps spread the word and find more like-minded people. So thanks for doing that if you have already. Again, a huge thanks to Kirsty, Thanks to the producer, Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. And of course, to you, wonderful people, for listening. I'll see you soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.